Good morning. It is 7.43 a.m. Monday morning. It's Christmas Eve, December 24th. I know last week I got the date wrong, but that's what happens when you wake up at 5.30 and do a podcast. No coffee. So, um, but this, this time I know what date it is. It is December 24th, and I am in the car with April. And we are on our way to Half Moon Bay. Uh, we are going to pick up some crab. There's only one ship selling them. We were going to go later because we're both hella tired. But it's like now or never because there's only one boat selling them. And once people find out we're there, just kidding. But um, we need to get those crabs and start to cooking them. And whatnot, and uh, we're gonna have a butter sauce. I want to make spanakopita as well. You know, I'm on the spinach kick, but I probably make some sort of wild rice pilaf or something of that nature, or maybe even just a plain rice with butter and then a side of spinach. I don't know what I'm gonna do with the sides, but it's gonna be delicious. I can't wait. Um, I'm already hungry. Surprise, surprise. Um, so yeah, I did not sleep well last night, so therefore no dreams. I woke up at about 4 a.m., had a tough time getting back to sleep. Somehow I managed to squeeze in another hour of sleep. I think that champagne agitates my dream world, so I'm going to have to consider the importance of having a glass of champagne or two. Um, Last night, I went over to Mike and Paulina's house in Berkeley, and they have their animal, animal, they have their annual Christmas party, um, and, and they normally have it on Christmas Eve, um, but this time they had it on the 23rd, and it was delicious. It was, uh, Paulina always serves a lot of Polish food, um, so there was borscht, there was a very rich sauerkraut and sausage dish with mushrooms in it and it was probably one of the richest sauerkraut dishes I've ever had in my entire life it was bursting with flavor I loved that dish oh my god it was so hearty and I do love a hearty meal it was hard maybe even too hearty for me um to to gorge myself on um the the borscht was a, a perfect foil um, there was tons of salmon, smoked salmon. There was a herring salad. There were apple slices. This yummy braided bread, not challah though. It, it was, it's like a, an artisanal bread. I don't know the name of, um, was there. Um, and, and lots of lovely people were there too. So all the usual suspects, um, and some, and some new people that, uh, from some of Mike's colleagues were there that I, I got to, to meet and, uh, some of, uh, people that went to school with Paulina that I hadn't met before. Um, and they were all delightful. Um, there, there were some Freudian slips that were, were pretty hilarious that happened towards the end of the night. Um, I've taken to saying happy feasting because, you know, you never know what is going to offend people these days. And someone returned it with, well, a word that sounds like feasting that involves your hand in the shape of a ball. Um, and some people 
you know, yeah. But and then they got really embarrassed. It was really cute. And then I was like, okay, bye. Um, I got a ride home with Chris and Kim and their, their uh, little one, Dee Dee. Um, they live in Petrero, so it was a pretty quick drop off from Berkeley. Um, but one of the things that happened on the way there, uh, we were at 24th, right between Treat and Harrison Street, and there was, okay, so there's a yoga studio where the Seventh-day Adventist Church used to be. All the churches now in the mission are, are yoga studios. Um, no one cares about religion. They just want to look hot. Um, and, and who can blame them? But still, it's a travesty because this is a cute little church. Um, so it, right near U Balance, there was a big black armored truck. And there were about, I quickly counted about 10 men dressed in black, black helmets, big guns, like long guns. They were just piling, you know, it reminded me of ants. It reminded me of ants. They were like piling out of their anthill mobile and it was so unsettling. So they were, uh, I believe one, they were going to the house that was right next door to you balance yoga, um, you know, yoga booty ballet, Pilates studio. Um, and they, one of them was posted on the stairs right near the front door like when you enter like in the foyer so you go through the door and one was on the side on the hallway with his gun across his chest and then there was another one on the second steps and then there was another one kind of standing guard and then more of them were coming out this was around 10 15 p.m i stayed at the party for 3.5 hours uh, so we got back into the mission by by 10:15, and that's where it was. Chris at first didn't know what to do because it just, it's so unsettling. You don't say something like that every day, um, and it was you know they were doing it very quietly. There were no no sounds, and the streets were other than that just silent. So then uh, he was like, "Well, should I you know go make a detour?" Should I go here? Should I go there? And then we just decided to go around them. But it was so, they were so scary. Oh my God. Um, wow. I have no idea why they were there and I'm dying to find out. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Um, the alley was hopping this week. Oh my God. I don't know if it was the full moon. On Wednesday, uh, Around 3.30 or 4 in the morning, uh, there was a a man-on-man, man-for-man lover's spat, and it was juicy. They're like, you've been fucking around on me, and they were um, really angry with each other. The funny thing is, it's like, don't have your fight here. I mean, this is, this place, y'all could get mugged while you're having a fight. Um, So that was juicy, uh, and that fight lasted about 15, 20 minutes, and they had a lot to say to each other. And then the second fight was the next morning, and um, oh my god, it was, I don't really know, I, th- I think it was more just an act of violence, I don't know if it was could be classified as a fight, but uh, this man, I think it's the same man who called the woman psycho, um, this man was dragging a woman by her hair, and she was screaming bloody murder, 
and I tried to get out there as fast as I could, but he, I mean, he was just dragging and dragging, and, and I was like, stop, you know, put her down, and he just ignored me. He's obvi obviously used to um, holding women in very low regard. I hope he gets hit by a car today. That would be a wonderful, that would be a Christmas miracle. Um, what a bastard. Um, and then on Thursday, I was walking home from the Arab store to get spices. I had gotten spices and I was walking down the alley. And this, I saw this kind of baby boomer woman. She was dressed just nicely, uh, well-dressed. Um, she locked eyes with me. And I was like, oh boy, oh boy. So I turned the corner and I had my headphones on. And I didn't, it took me about 15 seconds to realize that she was following me. And she followed me down my alley. So I was turning into like where the, you know, behind the McDonald's. So I was coming from 24th. I made a right on a 24th into my alley. And she finally broke through the sound barrier of my headphones and said, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And I, I took my headphones off and I do not like to be disturbed when I have my headphones on. I don't like to be spoken to or approached or chased, stalked or followed in any form. Um, so I slowly took my headphones off and I, I said, yes. And she said, who are you? And I, I just said, I didn't answer her right away. I said, what can I do for you? And she said, I'm Margaret. I know you from somewhere. And I was like, okay. I said, my name's Michelle. And she's like, where do I know you from? And I said, I don't know. I don't know where you know me from. And then she said, what is your last name? Just demanded it from me in a kind of a loud, not, you know, she's not a mean person, but just like a very demanding way that only a baby boomer can demand. Um, and I told her my last name, which for, you know, the purpose of this podcast is blank. Um, so yeah, blank. And then she's like, are you an artist? And I said, not really. No. And she said, are you sure? And I said, yep. And then she looked like she was about to ask me more questions. So, you know what? I told her to have a great day, which that seemed to kind of put her off off my scent a little bit as she had followed me to my front door and I was trying to get inside my house as soon as possible. Oh my word, the entitlement and, and just being followed. I don't, I don't think that she realized how unnerving that is for me. Um, I do not enjoy being followed at all. And I do not like trying to help someone solve a mystery of how they know me. It's not my responsibility to figure out how they know me. I don't know them from Adam. So how can I figure out how they know me? And also then demanding to know my last name and just demanding things from me. I did not like it, but I somewhat found it amusing. I hope to never see her again, but I have a feeling I'll run into her again. Um, 
so yeah, it has been a week of eating a lot of spinach and I've been drinking a ton of water. I'm bringing a giant gallon thing with me and I'm going to drink it again and I'll do the same thing tomorrow. Um, it's been really good. I, spinach is a huge game changer. I try to eat as much of it as I can in the morning. Um, I've been doing two soft boiled eggs and just a, a large side of spinach and a little bit of pepper. Um, cause I use salted butter with it and it's, it's just, Oh, it's so good. So good. I got some really delicious eggs that have like kind of like almost like a bright orange yolk. <laughs> so today I wanted to talk a bit about a very special person who was affected by the earthquake and fire of 1906. Enrico Caruso. Heard of him? Maybe, maybe not. Um, at the time of the earthquake, he was the most, probably one of the most celebrated, famous people in the world. And I'm not exaggerating. This is not hyperbole. He came into being at the right place at the right time. Uh, he was born uh, into, of course, abject poverty in Naples, Italy in 1873 and he he sang for for pennies and a pittance here and there to bring in a little extra money long story short he was discovered and made his debut on the stage as an opera singer and by the time he had gotten to San Francisco he had probably already done about 50 recordings of his voice. So he was one of the first recording artists out there. Um, and I think we take music for granted these days because, you know, we can just listen to our phone or YouTube or records, anything, you know, it's, we have constant access to it. And um, at the time, it, you couldn't just go and hear music. And especially to hear hear someone with such a phenomenal voice as Caruso's, but now it was being accessible to places far and wide. Thank you, you know, thanks to the um, record player and whatnot being invented. Um, and he also toured quite extensively. Um, he was a a big, beefy, handsome man. I. You know, I, I think that he's very handsome, actually. More handsome than than a handsome Gene Schmitz. Let's put it this way. Okay, so he has these beautiful, straight black eyebrows. He has these really sensitive eyes that are they're kind of big, but not too big. And they're just perfectly set. And then he has the, the best chin I've seen in a long time. He has like a, a chiseled chin. Um he kind of was given to fat a little bit as he got older and and he had some some issues with that as any good opera singer uh any good tenor <laughs> worth their salt will have um but under those layers of of flesh was a very handsome man um so he was staying at the palace hotel he had just performed in carmen at the mission opera house 
uh, on the night of April 17th, uh, 1906. And it was a wonderful performance. People, the city loved him and it was a huge honor for him to be there. He, I mean, the, the most famous person in the world. And of course, San Francisco in, in its right is a, is a, was already a famous city and, um, you know, very much involved in the arts and whatnot. Um, so he was awoken at 5 a.m. Uh, in the Palace Hotel. He was staying on the fifth floor. And from his own account, he thought he was still dreaming. He goes over to the window. He looks outside. And the buildings are wave are wavy. They're moving kind of in a wavy, slow manner so he thinks that he's he really thinks he cannot believe his eyes he's never seen anything like this there's fire going here and there being blown around then the buildings his own building that he's in he realizes it's shaking and he's so terrified he doesn't know what to do and you know he's a that's one of the that's the strange dichotomy that exists in this man you know he's so big and so strong but there's a fragility to Caruso there's a vulnerability to this man that just it's heartbreaking this man so he was so scared he was he would he didn't know what to do and he kind of regressed a bit as people do when they're in a state of trauma and shock and his valet came to his rescue I wish I knew the name of this valet this person is a saint I don't know anything about them except for he was a very kind man who loved Caruso and he said do not worry Mr. Caruso everything is just fine there is no problem here you come downstairs and I will take your luggage down for you well guess what he had 54 pieces of luggage okay and they were up they were five floors up at least and so he took, and, and I'm not just talking about like, you know, a little ditty bag here. We're talking about <laughs> steamer trunks full of costumes. Back then, um, in the, if you had a life in the theater, you had your own costumes. In fact, your costumes were sometimes what would get you the job. Now, his voice, of course, was what got him his job, but he still had to be costumed. And those costumes had to be fitted to his body. And um, so if he went to go sing Carmen, he would have his Carmen outfit on, <laughs> not as Carmen, don't worry, but you know, um, or a Pagliacci, he had his Pagliacci looks going. I think he did several, several characters in Pagliacci over the years, but that was all ready to go. And, you know, people criticized him as a vanity smurf or something because he had all this luggage and in the hyperbole and the chrysalis of, of history kind of makes him seem frivolous with those packages but those that was his bread and butter and he was a movable feast um, he also had 50 self-portraits of himself he was just protecting his brand I guess I'm a Caruso stan over here okay so um, the the valet faithfully brought each piece down and as he was bringing them down someone a pickpocket of sorts kind of I thought he hit pay dirt and started stealing the the um, luggage from him and 
Caruso was like, no, no take of my things, no take of my valise, uh, no take. But they wouldn't listen to him. And this soldier came by and thwarted the hoodlum. Um, and so after everything was loaded down, he, it was just mayhem. And he pretty much just had to kind of guard his his packages the valet was was kind of uh, holding holding court the whole night a, a vigil around these these um luggage pieces and he slept on the ground caruso did so this this giant ma- man this bear um he slept on the ground and he said his body ached for months um you know maybe a little exaggeration on his part but he i feel like he sustained a lot of emotional trauma. It, it literally shook him up. And I, his account, I think, is something that a lot of people of San Francisco experienced in in this, you know, quote, act of God, so to speak. Um, kind of like Armageddon, something they'd never think that they'd see in their lifetime. He never went back to San Francisco again. He just wanted, he had a villa in Naples. Uh, and he just wanted to go back there to his common-law wife mm-hmm, and their children. They had about four children at the time. Two of them were hers from another marriage. A wonderful man. If you get a chance, get on the YouTube and look up some Caruso. Look up his, his uh, some songs that he sang in Carmen and transport yourself back to that era and imagine seeing and hearing someone like this person. And and what an astounding event that must have been for someone at, t- at that time who had no media stimulus, no TV, nothing like that. And how beautiful that must have been. Because his voice is so passionate and it has so much emotion. And there's, some, there's a rawness uh, behind his ability to hit all the notes. It's, it's incredible. Even if you don't like opera, give him a chance. Um, you know, 250 recordings and, and millions of sales do not lie. Um, so another incident happened in Caruso's life uh, about six months, six to seven months after he was back in New York at the monkey house in Central Park. There was a monkey house there. The monkeys were going crazy. And uh, a woman and a cop accused him of pinching her bottom. Um, now, <laughs> I should not be laughing about this in this era of Me Too. But guess what? Caruso said the monkey did it. The monkey pinched the woman's bottom. And he was fined $10. And then it was speculated largely that the cop and the woman were in cahoots with each other in a form of entrapment just to kind of get some of his fame. I mean, there weren't that many celebrities on such a large scale as Caruso. And so at the time, and so I think every everyone kind of just wanted a little piece of it. They didn't, they didn't, uh, they hadn't experienced a celebrity of this sort. Um, and you know, he's from the old country and he had very little formal education, if any, at all. Um, he was a bril- he was brilliant in the way that he could memorize line after line and 
and note after note perfectly. That was his, he admitted that was his own strength. Um, but yeah, people were, were always trying to, to thwart him and whatnot. A couple years later, a uh, organization called the Society of the Black Hand, also known as La Mano Nera, uh, it was an Italian organization that had been around uh, since the mid 18th century, so since the 1750s, had decided to extort money from Caruso. Um, and the way, here's how they do it. This is how you know this is an authentic extortion from the Black Hand Society. They send you a little note. And they, they threaten to put lye in his tea that would, burn, that would burn him alive as he drank it. And there wouldn't be a damn thing he could do about it. And that there were people all around him in New York that could possibly be working for or under the protection of La Mano Nera. And then they would sign it with a doodle. And usually the doodle involved um, a skull or a knife drawing blood. Um, one of those little, ma- like a little mace, um, like a ball and chain thing. And then it always had the black hand on there. So... That was that was funny that they were prone to doodling. You know, a stamp would have, I think, been more officious. Um, but you know, I'm not in the mafia. I don't I don't make the rules. Um, so he did he did capitulate. He gave them two thousand dollars, and that was his mistake. Because then they're like, well, let's get some more out to him, capiche, and. Um, so then they upped the ante. Uh, enter Joe Petrosino. Uh, Joe Petrosino was a huge opera fan. He was a, a huge fan of Verdi. He was born in Salerno in 1860, Salerno, Italy. So he himself was a, an Italian immigrant. And he was a protector of, uh, of the arts and of... I mean, he was a, he was a policeman, <laughs> but he was also a protector of all, all the things in Italian American society. He, he, it was his duty and his mission to uphold that. Um, at the time, Italian Americans were stigmatized. Um, people, people maligned them. They, they excluded them. They isolated them. Um, Italian Americans had were resistant to to assimilation in the sense that other immigrants had done so. Um, they were very protective of their own culture, and in a way, it, it kind of alienated them um, from you know having access and respect in an American society, which is a tragedy. It's a tragedy because Italian culture is is the best. Um, so he himself. He disguised himself as Enrico Caruso, and they kind of look alike, kind of. They're both big guys, big and tall and beefy, but uh, Petrosino is not as handsome as Caruso, but he had a a coterie of disguises, um, and so he disguised himself as Caruso and met the two perps, 
Antonio Musiano and Antonio Cinsoto, Cinchoto, Cincoto. And he met them and um, he busted them. He busted up their whole operation. And uh, I love that he did that. And it wasn't his first time that he'd gone in disguise. Uh, he had dressed up as a hurdy-gurdy man. He dressed up as a Hasidic Jew for different cases. It was, he, was the, he was kind of an innovator in, in detective work. Um, he founded the Italian-American unit um, for, you know, in the police forces because there were, there were crimes that were happening um, unique to the Italian community that were not happening amongst other, other immigrant communities, um, mainly due to organizations such as uh, the Black Hand, um, or being screwed over from other, uh, culture, you know, other enclaves and not getting the protection that they needed. So it was causing, it was causing, um, a lot of these Italian immigrants to turn to, uh, quote, protection from the bad guys. So he stepped in and, and, um, and thwarted them. Uh, one, for example, uh, one of his first, his first runs was he, um, uh, someone came to him that had uh, been harassed by the by the Black Hand Society, and he pretended to be uh, the victim's cousin, and he beat the living crap out of those mafioso thugs. He got in the trenches and beat them up, disguised as the uh, victim's cousin, which I think is badass. Um, and he he did he died of uh, a gunshot wound um he was really getting close to infiltrating the core the the root the sinister root of of the black hand society and um he came the, you know, he came very close in italy he was killed by a member of the mafia so back to caruso um he had a lot of vicissitudes um, with his love life. Um, Ada Giacometti, or excuse me, Giacchetti, was his common-law wife. Uh, she was a soprano, not as famous as him. Definitely took on the more wifely role when she got with him. She left her own, you know, her own husband for him and stayed with him in his villa for about 11 years. She was about four years older than him. She ended up running away with his chauffeur and trying to extort money from Caruso. There, there's a theme where he was constantly, um, people were trying to extort from him. And guess what? Um, when Petrosino died in 1909, Caruso was continuously still uh, stalked, harassed, and extorted um, up until right before he died in 1921. Um, he died of periontitis and some kidney failures um, at 48. Both both Caruso and Petrosino died at the age of 48. So, oh, I don't know, maybe that's a, that's a weird year or something. So, I'm fascinated by Caruso. And... I like that he stayed in the Palace Hotel when he was here. 
that's the same hotel where Abe Roof had his office of sorts at the very top. And I'm sorry that he experienced such a traumatic event in San Francisco history because I, I feel that if that hadn't occurred, he would have continued to come back and to regale us. And who knows, there might have even been a special salad dressing or a lasagna dish or something named after him that San Francisco could take credit for because everyone wants a little bit of Caruso's fame. Anyway, so we are driving down the coast. It's raining. It's absolutely gorgeous out. The sky is white. And we see little glimpses of ocean waves rolling up there. And I love it. It's it's magnificent. This is a beautiful Christmas Eve. Whatever feasting you do today and tomorrow, I hope it's wonderful. I've got some things cooked up for tomorrow. I'm going to have a lot of fun. And I hope you all do too. Have a great day. Bye-bye.